Welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is our first ever Stronger by Science live podcast. Um, when we first started the podcast, we mentioned that the stated goal was basically to become the next Bill O'Reilly Rush Limbaugh combination. And obviously they do stuff live in front of the camera, not just audio. So quite famously so. So here we are in front of the silver SBS microphones and we're ready to go. So before we get into a bunch of questions, um, first of all, make sure you sign up for the newsletter, make sure you join the Facebook group and the subreddit. Um, we'll find a way to put links uh, into this at some point, but People who are here for this, they're probably already parts of those communities. One one would hope. I think so. Um, and yeah, if you need supplements, go over to bulksupplements.com. Use the promo code SBSPOD. You get 5% off your order. Uh, all right, we should be good to go. Let's do it. Did you have... Oh, I should acknowledge a little tactical error on our part. Um, we explicitly uh, scheduled this to cater to our American audience based on the time zones yeah, and scheduled it right over top of a bunch of really good college football games. So <laughs> uh, I don't know what we were thinking there, but uh, thank you for choosing us over college football. Um, and you can always check the scores when we're done. All right, Greg, did you have any specific question that you were stoked about answering first? Um, I mean, I, I was planning on... Uh, basically just answering questions as they came in. We've got a live audience here. Give them what they want. Cool. Uh, and then if things slow down, we can scroll back up to the top and and see what's lurking for us up there. Does that work for you? Sure. Yeah. You want to start at the very top or like the newest one? Uh, I mean, like fairly new. Uh, first off, shout out to Janik, 2 a.m. German dude checking in. Wow. Uh, Good work. I would not be listening to this at 2 a.m., but more power to you. Also, <laughs> Luca. Um, here's a meaty one to lead off on. Uh, Ponser study. Please help us interpret the total energy expenditure difference. Do you want to talk about Ponser stuff? Yeah, so this is uh, an exciting time for all the Ponser heads out there. Um, and yeah. I'm sure there are many. Uh, so Ponser, they he and a very big group of collaborators put out a couple studies the last couple weeks. And that's pretty common. You'll work on a big, big, big project and then papers will kind of all hit the journals uh, in a really sh relatively short time frame. And so they had the one paper that was looking at uh, total daily energy expenditure over the lifespan. So they, they had this enormous data set with like 6,000 people or something like that, uh, ranging from literally newborns to people in their mid nineties. Uh, there were, uh, pregnant women in the study at all stages of pregnancy. So it was a really cool look at really good, uh, valid data on total daily energy expenditure, uh, measured via doubly labeled water, which is, uh, the gold standard when it comes to, uh, measuring it in free, free yeah. living people who are going about their business. Which is good because we, if we want to know people's daily energy expenditure, we want them to be doing their normal day-to-day -day stuff. So uh, there was that study, uh, but there was also another study where they looked at um, the way that total daily energy expenditure can be kind of constrained uh, when uh, activity is intentionally sought out. So as activity level goes up, um, 
you know, one of Ponser's, one of the ideas that he's really known for is the idea that we kind of offset that by reducing basal metabolic rate to, to an extent and, and reducing potentially non-exercise activity as well. So those were the two studies, and I'm not certain necessarily which one the question's referring to, but I think uh, these two studies were extremely well done. They're really impressive collaborative efforts. A uh, tremendous amount of time and resources went into both. And I think both of the studies showed some fairly intuitive findings. So the first one basically indicated that the major determinant of an individual's uh, total daily energy expenditure is their fat-free mass. And within most of the adult, uh, you know, f from the age of like 20 to 60 or something like that, uh, total daily energy expenditure was relatively stable. Um, and, and the the most reliable predictor of it was fat-free mass. Uh, it didn't really differ much based on biological sex. Surprisingly, didn't differ that much during pregnancy and in the post-pregnancy period. Th that one honestly surprised me the most. I was surprised by that finding in particular, but... Uh, Basically, from 20 to 60, a lot of people, as we mentioned on a recent episode, they kind of say, oh, once you turn 40, once you turn 50, you know, it all goes downhill. You start gaining fat mass. I think that the two interesting findings from the Ponser study was that was pretty stable up to the age of about 60. And then there was a decline. But uh, after 60, what was interesting was there was a decline in total daily energy expenditure, but there was not an increase in fat mass. Uh, basically, sarcopenia just kind of set in activity level went down and potentially organ level energy expenditure went down as well so there were reductions at the ages of 60 and above um but but it looks like those are largely due in part to reductions in activity level but also in part due to reductions in fat-free mass and even specifically maybe even at the tissue level, there was some reduction in the energy expenditure of those specific fat-free tissues. Um, but they kind of left that open-ended because they weren't certain exactly what was going on there. Mm -hmm. The other Ponser paper recently looked at, uh, we haven't really covered this in any of our content, but I, I have briefly looked at it. And it was the same general approach uh, in terms of the study, but basically it, it, it largely confirmed his general uh, hypothesis that when humans increase their their active energy expenditure, there is some degree of compensation where they reduce either resting energy expenditure or non-exercise activity expenditure. With the method they used, it was kind of hard to discern exactly what was being constrained, NEAT versus resting metabolic rate. Uh, but what they did find in the study was there was compensation, but it wasn't complete compensation. It's not like if you increased your activity by 150 calories, your resting energy expenditure drops by 150 and you're in the same place. It was an incomplete compensation where a fraction of the activity energy expenditure was offset by some uh, constraint uh, placed on other types of energy expenditure. One of the really fascinating things was that it wasn't the same for everybody. Uh, people with higher body fat tended to have a greater compensation, which meant for people who had higher body fat, if they did some exercise to burn off calories, they were more likely to find a way to conserve calories elsewhere, resting energy expenditure or non-exercise activity. And so the question that they left kind of open-ended there was a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. You know, is it that um, these individuals developed high body fat because they're compensators? Or is it that as you develop more body fat, you start to compensate more. Mm -hmm. If I had to guess, I would think the former rather than the latter. 
Well, yeah, there's um, ah, man, what was his name again? Bouchard back in the day uh, did some twin studies on that, which, you know, uh, theoretically, if, if you're seeing similar changes within twin pairs, that suggests that there's probably a genetic component to it. Uh, did an overfeeding study like back in the back in the 80s or early 90s, um, basically finding that the uh, the amount of weight gained per the amount of weight gained relative to predicted weight gain uh, varied considerably between twin pairs from, you know, I, I think the total overfeeding was like 84,000 calories. Uh, and some of the twin pairs gained like 90% as much weight as one would expect, uh, assuming you just take in 84,000 additional calories with no compensation in energy expenditure. Uh, and then I think the, the most like blessed twin pairs, um, only gained like 20% of what would be expected. Uh, again, with like relatively strong correlations within twin pairs, um, so ob obviously that's overfeeding and, and compensations to that rather than exercise. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I think it is probably both chicken and egg, but I think it's more chicken. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Something popped up. Somebody asked about rhodiola. Didn't you just put out a little bit of I content did. on rhodiola? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to briefly give an overview of that since it came up in the chat here? Uh, yeah. Where, where was the question? Um, let's see. Did it, did it just come out? Matt. <laughs> yeah. Matt asked the question, do either of you think there's enough evidence to recommend rhodiola and or L-dopa in a pre-workout or is the evidence not very okay, good? Okay, cool. So it's asking specifically about a pre-workout. Yeah. Um, so yeah, within that context, it might depend what kind of training goal you have. Um, so there've been two, uh, two, anaerobic exercise studies with rhodiola to this point. So uh, one of them used repeated sprints. So three half Wingate tests. So 15 second all out anaerobic sprint tests. Uh, and then the most recent one used a multi set rep to failure protocol, I, I believe on bench press. That one just came out last month or, or like two months ago, pretty recently. Um, and the interesting thing that both of them found was that rhodiola consumed uh, pre-workout, I think in the, uh, I think it was just consumed pre-workout in the cycling study and was consumed for like two weeks beforehand in addition to pre-workout in the bench press study. Uh, but regardless, the, the final dose was taken during the pre-workout window. Uh, and in both of them, when people used rhodiola, it improved power output. So like peak power output during a Wingate test uh, and like bar velocity and power output, uh, during, I think a single set of three reps on bench press at 70% one RM. Uh, so it improved, uh, like peak power output based metrics. Uh, but in the cycling study, the subjects taking, uh, rhodiola had a slightly greater fatigue index. So basically from the start of the first sprint to the end of the last sprint, they experienced a slightly larger decrease in power output. Uh, and also in the most recent bench press study, the subjects taking rhodiola, in spite of having uh, greater power output when they were fresh, actually completed slightly fewer reps over either like three or four sets to failure. Um, so it seems like rhodiola when taken pre-workout might improve kind of like 
top-end peak power output and maybe force output as well, uh, but might actually decrease strength endurance and increase fatigability to some degree. So uh, obviously, we're talking about two studies here, so this is very, very preliminary. But based on the preliminary evidence, it looks like rhodiola as a pre-workout if you're doing like a really heavy, fairly low volume strength workout or a fairly low volume power-based workout might be beneficial for acute performance. Uh, whereas if you're doing like a really high volume, like bodybuilding workout, it might actually be slightly ergolytic. Um, so again, we're talking about two studies here, but based on two studies, that is the current state of the evidence. That is two more studies than we have, uh, in comparison to turkesterone and we did get a <laughs> a trolling kind of question about turkesterone so that is true <laughs> i might as well address that um because i did notice so in a recent episode we talked about how there's just oh actually before we get into this uh there was a follow-up question oh um asking about like standardizing based on saladroside versus rosevin for the for the rhodiola uh, both of the studies to this point have used the now foods formulation, uh, which I think is th standardized to 3% saladrosides and 1% rosevin. Um, so whether some other ratio is better or not, I don't know, but that's, that's what's been tested so far. Yeah. That's a tricky thing with supplement research is like when you only have a handful of studies on a particular ingredient for a particular outcome, and it can be standardized different ways or it can be mm -hmm. dosed different ways. It takes a long time to figure out what the optimal dose is. I mean, you know? especially when you're dealing with herbal extracts. Yeah. There's like hundreds of potentially bioactive ingredients. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. One thing I did want to mention, uh, after we talked about how there's really just no human turkestrone evidence um, and, and certainly no human tech turkestrone evidence that we know of uh, looking at performance or hypertrophy or anything like that. Uh, you know, we mentioned that on the podcast and some people kind of interpreted the ambiguity as uh, optimism. You know, mm -hmm. it was kind of like we said, ah, oh, there's no evidence for it, no evidence against it. Um, and I think some people interpreted that as a completely 50-50 coin toss. Mm -hmm. um, so it is worth mentioning that like, I'm a bit of a skeptic. Uh, so like there is no evidence to, to indicate that it does or does not affect performance or hypertrophy. But my skepticism is based on uh, a series of other FIDO-FD steroids that to this point have failed to pan out mm -hmm. uh, in the relevant literature available. So uh, since we got a question about turkesterone, uh, I figured I would uh, address that briefly. Uh Someone just pointed out I'm not particularly bronze. Um, I was only bronze for one day in like 2017, but the whole internet thinks I look like that every day. Yeah, I'll I'll be honest. Uh, I was I was surprised at what you looked at, like the first time I saw you, because <laughs> uh, the only picture of you I'd ever seen was your author photo at JTS, uh, where you were very shredded and very orange. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm neither, but that's okay. Hey, Omar stopped by. He did. He's asked uh, two trolling questions so far. Uh, previously, he asked what your opinions were about marijuana. Uh, and he also asked, could we define pain as a <laughs> callback to uh, a roundtable that 
were you on that or was I it? was. Well, I <laughs> I was. Oh on, yeah, you you were like moderating it. I was moderating, and my my internet dropped out like three times. <laughs> yeah. So I basically caught the opening, <laughs> and I said bye to everybody, and that was about it. Yeah, it, it was it was a uh, it was a roundtable on whether uh, exercise technique influences injury risk, uh, and so we started by being like, okay, so let's just try to start with a. a operational definition of injury that we can all agree to and it just went around and around for like 45 minutes or an hour yeah. and we never settled on a definition that everyone could agree with uh at one point it went towards what if it's just an increase in entropy in the system yeah <laughs> so and, and eventually we were like okay we we need to keep this rolling yeah i think one of the reasons it's particularly funny to me is because omar really explicitly told me that my job as moderator was just to <laughs> usher us through the definition process to keep it snappy. And the moment we started that, my my internet dropped and my internet came back like six hours later and we were just wrapping that up. And I was like, I had one job and I did not accomplish that. But it was, it was a fun round table. I thought it was good. People got useful stuff out of it. There are varying opinions. <laughs> All right. Do you have any uh, training related questions that are popping up? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Someone, uh, several comments back asked, uh, if you're bench pressing and your goal is not just primarily powerlifting, you know, if you're not just trying to increase one RM at all cost, uh, does it make sense to still arch or, you know, should you just bench flat back? And honestly, I think that a lot of that just has has to do with proportions. Um, I think that if you're mostly benching for hypertrophy, uh, most people with most builds, it probably makes the most sense uh, to either not arch at all or not have much of an arch, just so you're you're working through a slightly longer range of motion, especially at uh, like end range of motion for the muscles you're trying to train. Uh, but with that said. Uh, I, I used to train a fair number of basketball players and they were uh, most of them just very lanky motherfuckers. Uh, and for them, uh, the ones that could arch bench press was so much more comfortable if they arched just because like their proportions were so absurd that uh, just looking at the way their shoulders were moving, I really wouldn't recommend them bench to their chest uh, yeah. just because their arms were so long. Um so yeah, the the ones who could arch, I'd have a march. Everyone else, I would just let them do two board press. Um, so yeah, th there are situations where I'd still recommend arching if you're not primarily training for powerlifting. But uh, for the most part, I, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. So for me personally, Greg, you know, I bench with a really minimal arch. Like I, I pretty much bench flat back. Yeah. Uh, and and for me, it's to basically. Uh, for some reason, it just feels better for me with, uh, I've got a bit of a, uh, injury history with my shoulder. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, when I get a really severe arch, um, I've got like a broken collarbone separated AC joint that I didn't let heal. Like for me personally, I can just get way more out of a block of training benching. If I go flat back and accommodate how that feels mm -hmm. versus a really extreme arch. So, uh, like you said, it's not really a cut and dry thing. It, you have to kind of feel feel out what's working for you and what's going to give you not just the quickest strength gains, but you know, 
make sure that you're achieving the goal you have, you know? So for me personally, training purely for pec growth and trying to make sure I get as much as I can out of that training block, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take on extra, you know, grinding and pain in the shoulder just to put a few more uh, pounds on the bar Mm -hmm. using a form that it's probably going to even take a little bit of that focus away from the pec anyway. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've got another very spicy, uh, very spicy take on bench press. Honestly, if someone's not training for powerlifting, I don't know that I'd recommend they bench in the first place. Oh, it's not that's bad for the brand. It's it's not a bad exercise by any means. Um, But I think that I don't know what you gain from benching that you can't get from dumbbell press. And I so I, I, you know, if, if there was like a pro con matrix. I wouldn't really put anything as a pro for bench press that wouldn't also be on the dumbbell press one. But I think there are additional pros of dumbbell press. Uh, and, and the cons mostly relate to maximal loading. Like, you know, you can do triples on bench press way easier than you can do triples on dumbbell press. Uh, but if you're not a power lifter, like, who cares? Um, so, yeah, I, I think you can target your pecs a little bit better with dumbbells. And also, like, most people j- just I've observed find that the most comfortable uh, groove to press in is not with like fully pronated wrists, um, like for their elbows, shoulders, wrists, whatever else. Um, you know, not like a fully neutral grip, but somewhere between pronated and neutral tends to be the most comfortable. And like, there are specialty bars that can accommodate that, but also dumbbells accommodate that. <laughs> um, and then really the only major advantage I could see with barbells is they do probably hit your triceps a little bit harder. But also like bench press isn't that great of a triceps exercise in the first place. So like you're going to be doing extra triceps work anyway, hopefully. Um, So yeah, I mean, I I would mostly just recommend uh, not benching if you're not a power lifter. Um, I I will say it's very valid to bench press just because you know people are going to ask you like, how much do you bench? Uh, But otherwise, like I, I don't think it's better for most goals than dumbbell press. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Uh, we did have somebody ask a question about outfits. I think somebody tried to catch me not wearing George, but they're way off. I have a uh, George athletic pant on and I've got George boxer briefs on actually. So I'm, I'm nice. all Georged out. This shirt was one of the ones from Michael's that I did mention on the podcast. You cannot find a better shirt for $3 than this one. And someone asked why I was wearing such flashy colors, and it's to uh, support the Buckeyes tonight for the big game. Very nice. All right. Um, I did see an interesting question in here, but I lost track of it. Yeah, so Frank S. asked if surplus calories eventually can become maintenance calories if all other factors are kept the same. Uh, And the answer is yes. The answer is, uh, you know, that that, uh, happens quite often when we're trying to bulk, you know, so... Uh, if you start a, a bulking phase, trying to gain some weight, gain some muscle, um, you know, you'll start out with a particular caloric target for the day, um, you know, hit that target day in and day out, you'll start gaining some weight. Uh, and eventually you'll find that some combination of two things happen. So first of all, uh, you're going to be adding weight if you, if you are in this caloric surplus and hopefully a large percentage of that is muscle. And so as we start 
you know, as we have more tissue accretion, especially if it's fat-free tissue, we're going to see that our energy expenditure uh, increases, not just from increasing resting energy expenditure, but also, you know, if, if you're carrying a heavier body around all day, that, that does have some effect on total daily energy expenditure as well. So part of the reason we're going to see our energy needs go up is because we have more active tissue. But another part is that most people have some degree of upward adaptation to a caloric surplus. Um, what's really fascinating is that the magnitude of that adaptation is highly variable. So there was a study I'm thinking of where they brought people in for, I think, six weeks, six to eight weeks, something like that. They overfed them by a thousand calories a day. Uh, and we're just like, hey, let's watch people gain some weight. And I think the researchers were a little bit surprised at the degree of variability that was observed, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, some people, when they were overfed a thousand calories a day, uh, they had this big upregulation in total daily energy expenditure that really attenuated weight gain. I mean, not entirely, but to a, a really impressive degree. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a real physiologically, it was an, impre an impressive magnitude of adaptation to see uh it was more than i would have otherwise thought people were capable of mm -hmm. to be honest and then uh a lot of people in the sample uh who had a higher propensity to weight gain there was just really minimal adaptation you gave them a thousand calories a day extra and they stored most of that thousand calories a day we might be thinking of the same study uh, I was, uh the one i'm thinking of i believe is by levine and colleagues oh okay uh but uh but basically, uh, so yeah, when you are bulking and you you set your first set of calories, that's going to get you somewhere. But that's probably, you know, if you want to continue gaining weight for a really long time and you have really ambitious bulking goals, you're probably going to have to increase your calories again at some point uh, because your surplus has now become your maintenance. Some of that is an upregulation of energy expenditure and some of that is just having a bigger body. Just to expand on that a little bit, the the compensation, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, uh, it goes in both directions. Like people have some degree of compensation to increased energy intake. Um, some people have, well, most people have some degree of compensation. And most people have some degree of compensation to decreases in energy intake. And so functionally, like there, a lot of people just kind of have like a dead zone in terms of calories. And I think one of one of the things that, uh, often frustrates people who don't have much experience with either losing or gaining weight um, is, you know, like maybe you hear that rule of thumb, like, oh, if you uh, if you cut your calories by 500 per day, you'll lose about a pound a week. Not exactly true, but generally it gets you in, in the right ballpark, at least in, in terms of if the math works out. But since there is kind of that dead zone, uh, if you were maybe like, like let's say there's a 500 calorie range that that for you is functionally maintenance. If you were somewhere near the top of that range, maybe like 200 calories above the midpoint, then dropping 500 calories, like eh, maybe now you're in a deficit, but it's a very, very small deficit and you're not losing weight at nearly the rate you thought you would. Uh, and, and I think for people who um, classically classify themselves as hard gainers, I think it goes the opposite direction. They they have a lot of room for adaptation to increases in energy intake. And so, you know, they're maybe near the bottom of that dead zone. And so like they increase their calories by 200 per day because they're, they're trying to lean bulk, not gain weight super fast. 
they may still functionally be at maintenance there because uh, they they almost completely compensate for it. Um, so I, I think that's something to keep in mind when you're trying to either lose or gain weight. Um, you know, the, the initial diet setup is just part of the story. Like you definitely need to keep adapting um, and monitoring as you go. And oftentimes if you're trying to lose weight, you're going to have to drop your calories a decent bit more than you thought you would have uh, if you did know your maintenance. And same thing, like oftentimes if you're trying to gain weight, you're going to have to increase your calories a little bit more than you thought you would uh, if you already know your maintenance, just because you do kind of have that dead zone in the middle. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, William Patrick had a question. He asked, uh, OH, and to that I respond, I-O. Um, I, I also respond, I-O. That's excellent to hear. Uh, so I, I need to respond to a question from Nogheads. Uh, cause he's, I think put this in the chat about five times already. Uh, he asked, I recently heard Jeff Nippard say he no longer believes volume is the primary driver of volume. I assume that's hypertrophy. Uh, is this no longer the prevailing belief? So, uh, is, is training volume the primary driver of hypertrophy or not? And honestly, as time goes on, as I get older and wiser, I kind of don't even like that classification anymore. Like trying to determine like what is uh, the primary driver of something uh, either, you know, hypertrophy, strength, whatever, because one, yeah, you have to talk about like what time scale are you talking about? Uh, and two, I, I view it more now in the frame of uh, necessary versus sufficient conditions. So, you know, it, it's all well and good to say, Oh, Training volume is the primary driver of hypertrophy. But then oftentimes the counter is someone will be like, oh no, like it's all about intensity, like in the classic bodybuilding definition, like not percentage of one RM, but like getting close enough to failure. Like that's what it's all about. And I think they're both right uh, because when taken to an extreme, if you say like, oh, like volume is the primary driver and I'm going to assume that's the major variable. So maybe I can let some other things slide in the interest of maximizing training volume. Well, then it makes sense. Like, hey, I'm not going to go close to failure at all. Because if I'm trying to maximize the tonnage or the number of sets that I'm doing per workout, I just can't do as much if I'm going close to failure every set. So if I'm trying to maximize volume on a set-by-set -set basis, like I'm going to train like a wimp so I can get more total volume in. And then, you know, oftentimes you'll have substandard results. Uh, but then, you know, on the flip side, I, I do find most um, like most natural lifters do need more volume than say the, the very old school high intensity training approach where you just do one set, five reps past failure and then rest for two weeks. Uh, so, you know, if someone said it's all about intensity, you maximize intensity, you'll, you'll maximize results. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're going that route and saying like, okay, this is the proxy that I'm the, the thing I can measure that I'm going to attempt to optimize for and let other things go by the wayside, like maybe training volume, then you'll also have substandard results. So, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to say what the primary driver is because there are so many factors that are important to still include. Like you need to be doing enough volume. You need to have solid exercise selection 
you need to be going close enough to failure. Like you, you need to be eating enough calories. You need to be eating enough protein. You need to be sleeping enough. Like you, you can make the argument like, oh no, actually the main driver of hypertrophy is protein intake. Because if you didn't eat any protein, you wouldn't gain any muscle. In fact, you would die. Uh, but like, you know, obviously eating enough protein isn't sufficient to maximize hypertrophy. So ultimately, I don't even care what the main driver is. Uh, and I don't even know how I would be able to define functionally what it means to be the primary driver of hypertrophy. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of things that contribute and you just can't neglect any of them. Yeah, it, that actually, kind it doesn't totally relate, but you could kind of build off from that and address a question that came up earlier. It's kind of buried in the comments at this point, but someone mentioned that they're a busy grad student and they're wondering, you know, basically how, how can they get by, you know, what's the, the least they have to do basically to try to achieve hypertrophy or maintain lean mass. I can't remember exactly what the stated goal was, but, um, you know, one of the things I worry about with that kind of blanket statement that volume is the key driver is that I think a lot of people, hear that and they say, well, I can't train 12 hours a week. So I guess I'm screwed, you know, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, volume, volume in my mind means time. Like it's, it's kind of tough to do a really high volume program on a, on a really crunch time budget. Mm -hmm. it, it can be really challenging to do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I would say as, uh, a, a response to that question and a note of encouragement, I guess, for people who are, uh, concerned that they can't invest the amount of time required to have a, a traditional high volume training program. Mm -hmm. I very much was that busy grad student for quite a few years. And like my basic guidance would be if you can try to hit each muscle group twice per week, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape, you know, and with, you know, appropriate proximity to failure, you know, leaving one or two or three reps in the tank for most sets get into the gym, make sure you're hitting each body part, each main muscle group twice a week. And that can be two, two full body workouts. It can be upper, lower, upper, lower. You'll know what you have time for. And if your grad school is anything like, like mine, it could be different every week, you know? So there would be some weeks where I'd be like, all right, I'm just going to go into the gym, uh, twice and do, do a couple full body workouts and just see what I can get done in an hour, mm -hmm. you know? And then there'd be other weeks where I could kind of split things out a little bit. So, uh, I think that's one of the downsides of everybody pushing, you know, you got to have this particular set and rep or this particular rep range and volumes, the key driver. And then people are like, well, then all my workouts are supposed to be like two hours, you yeah. know, and that's really not necessary for most goals. And also if the question is, you know, what is sufficient for maintenance? Uh, I think people are often shocked especially if you're reasonably young and healthy and not in a huge caloric deficit, how little training you can get, you can get away with and still be able to maintain most of your muscle, most of your strength, if not all of it. Um, so, uh, for example, I was just a co-author on a paper from, uh, pack one of our coaches at stronger by science. Um, I was going to attempt to pronounce. Yeah, no, I, I think I remember his name. Patroclus Androlakis Korakakis. I'm sure if we have any Greek people listening, I'm sure they're very angry right now. Uh, but anyway, Pac, great guy. Uh, he, he did his um, PhD research 
on what is the minimum effective training dose, not just to maintain strength, but to increase strength. Uh, and, and he found that, um, like just one or two workouts per exercise, working up to uh, a heavy single, uh, and then with a couple dropback sets was enough for most people who were already reasonably strong to still make some strength gains. So if all you're trying to do is maintenance, you can get away with even less than that. Uh, and then on the hypertrophy side of things, there was an older study, I want to say it was maybe like 2003, 2004, um, but it, it, it's a classic in kind of like the, the volume reduction and, and uh, muscle maintenance uh, area of research. Basically, they, they trained uh, some younger folks and some older folks uh, for, for 12 weeks, 16 weeks, something like that. Um, and they wanted to see how much they could then reduce volume by and people still be able to maintain what they had gained uh, for, a, for a reasonably long period of time. I, I think they were looking over a span of 16 weeks, 24 weeks, something like that. Uh, and they found that in the younger subjects, they were able to reduce training volume to one ninth of what it had been previously. And they were able to maintain the muscle that they built. Uh, in the older subjects with reducing to one ninth, uh, they did lose some muscle there, but older folks could still reduce it to one third of what they'd been doing previously uh, and still be able to maintain what they previously built. So yeah, if maintenance is the goal, you can get away with astoundingly little training uh, and, and be able to hold on to what you got. Um, and you know, you'll you'll need considerably more to keep gaining strength, keep and especially keep gaining muscle. Uh, but just to hold on to what you currently have, you can probably reduce training volume from a effective dose to gain strength or muscle at a decent clip. You can probably drop it seventy five percent and be just fine for for maintenance over the the pretty long term good stuff yeah I, I tried to go back and find that question i think i might have made it up <laughs> I, I i think it just kind of came out of my subconscious all that all those repressed thoughts of being too busy because of grad school i just i made up the question Okay, no, somebody saw the question. Uh, did yeah, Ryan exist. saw the question. He attests that it was real. And so Ryan has asked a few times about some dating advice, and mm -hmm. that is technically allowed since we did cover that in one of our fireside chats. Yeah, sure, sure. Why not? And the question was basically like within the three days of a date, mm -hmm. what can you do to kind of make your physique <laughs> more impressive uh, to kind of basically how do I peak? my physique for a date. Yeah. Um, I can't stress this enough. This is critically important. This is because I, dude, I have been there. I have been there when, yeah, just forget about your physique and the date will go a thousand times better. I, I absolutely guarantee it. Uh, if you're, on a date and you're thinking the whole time, like, I wonder how my feet physique is looking. I wonder how this is working. That's not going to go well. Try to connect with your date, have a good time, showcase your personality. That's the best bet by far. Uh, if you, if you really want to try to stack the deck in your favor before you go to the date, I don't know, get a quick pump or something, but just don't show up really sweaty. Uh, and you know, Maybe have some extra carbs the day before if you've been dieting. You know, might get you a, a little bit more glycogen replenishment. But 
my my advice more than anything is just do not think about your physique at all when you're on the date. Ask interesting questions. Uh, be interesting. You know, any anything to add to that? I mean, my, my most of my dating advice would relate to picking up high school girls in 2008. So uh, when you were in high school, correct, which is important to stress. So yeah, I, I don't know what the dating market in, in 2021 is like. So I, I'm probably not of, of much use there. Yeah, I, I have been a, in a relationship for a long time now. So things move so fast in the world. I, I probably have no basis for giving dating advice either. Three Three years is like an eternity. I'll take your word for it. Um, all right. Uh, so what else do we have here? Uh, it's mostly just people shit posting about <laughs> dating and physiques now. Yeah. Um, Th there were two questions that came up that relate to some stuff I did in grad school and I, I figured I might as well address those briefly. So one person asked, uh, what is a normal creatine kinase level for someone who's lifting? Mm -hmm. uh, that comes up a lot. And it, I, we, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's really common for people to reach out to a fitness professional and say, I just went to the doctor. They did routine blood work. My doctor says I'm dying because my creatine kinase is too high. Mm -hmm. And there's usually some other things, you know, maybe creatinine might be high. Uh, maybe some liver enzymes might be elevated a little bit. And it can be really jarring. And if your physician isn't particularly uh, like knowledgeable about exercise specifically, they might freak out when they, when they see that kind of blood panel. But, you know, a lot of times that's just reflecting muscle damage. Um, of course, there are serious medical conditions that do manifest as really high creatine kinase readings. So you shouldn't just flatly ignore this type of stuff, but you want to contextualize it. So if you have been doing a really hard block of training, had an unusually hard workout, uh, you know, ha did some type of exercise you're not accustomed to, um, you know, that's the type of thing where your creatine kinase is going to be elevated well above the normal level. Uh, it's not an unusual, uh, it's not unusual for that to occur. There is a study uh, where we, when I was in grad school, were trying to induce muscle damage to then study recovery, you know, mm -hmm. which is very common. When you look at studies on recovery modalities, they'll be like, hey, why don't you run downhill for an hour? And like, that's that's brutal. Uh, or let's do like, you know, a million sets to failure and see how you do over the next 72 hours. And like the answer is not well. Or uh, when I was doing my lit review for, for my thesis, um, I was looking at recovery in males and females. And one of the studies I came across uh, was looking at force recovery of the biceps uh, after a fatigue protocol consisting of 15, uh, five sets of 15 maximal eccentric <laughs> bicep curl reps. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things they specifically pulled out in that study is uh, they, they were looking at the rates of, I forget what terminology terminology they use, but basically people who uh, fatigued or who recovered exceptionally slowly. And I think they operationally define that as people who still had a 25% reduction in force output a week after the exercise bout. So, you know, like let's say you can curl a hundred pounds or something as a one RM, like a week later, you still can't do 75 for one. Uh, so th that's like the level of, uh, of fatigue you're talking about 
uh, in muscle damage you're talking about in, in some of those damage protocols used in the research. Uh, in that study from pre to post, the maximum isometric voluntary contraction force of the biceps on average uh, decreased by like 76% in the subjects, <laughs> which is outrageous. Like yeah. the, the typical healthy young male is like about four times stronger than the typical like sarcopenic female. So we're, we're talking about taking strapping young bucks and turning them into old ladies in the nursing home, it, at least in terms of bicep strength. Yeah. So, so some of those, uh, some of those muscle damage protocols are absolutely insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in that line of research and in the research we did during grad school, like it, it, creatine kinase levels often get out of the normal range, even with day-to-day -day training, uh, creatine kinase levels tend to be it, just with athletes, like normative data for athletes is different when you compare it to normative data for non-athletes, because athletes are typically training whenever you bring them in to test them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's not super uncommon. It's not something that would be, uh, particularly jarring if you see that on your blood work, but you do want to investigate that. Maybe, uh, next time you do a deload, go in and check, verify, make sure everything's looking normal. Maybe you take a few days off and repeat the blood test, you know, just to get that peace of mind, make sure there's nothing, uh, that needs to be addressed there. Uh, so I don't know the exact number, uh, where, where I would start to panic, like in creatine kinase, the units are, are kind of wacky. Like you, you see studies where the numbers are just enormous and, and then they drop down precipitously. I, I'm not good enough with units to have a number off the top of my head where I would say that is a number that is bad, but like, you'll see some numbers that are well above the normal range, uh, in conditions of acute muscle damage. Um, one other question that came up that I wanted to briefly mention, someone asked what brown adipose tissue is. Um, and that's another area where I did a little bit of research in grad school. Uh, the only reason I want to briefly address this is because it's kind of picking up like every couple of years, this picks up where it gets kind of popular and people start talking about it. So brown adipose tissue, these are fat cells, just like, you know, subcutaneous fat that we would think of the white adipose tissue. But the thing that's different about brown adipose tissue is that these fat cells have a higher rate of metabolic activity. They have greater mitochondrial density. And in certain physiological situations, they can become stimulated to increase their energy uh, utilization, increase uh, heat production, basically. So when they get stimulated, they start metabolizing more substrates, they start generating a lot of heat, and they're basically burning energy in a very uncoupled fashion. So you're burning calories at an accelerated rate, not necessarily to, to generate ATP, but just to kind of burn off some heat. Um, for the longest time, it was thought that adult humans don't have enough to care about. It was, you know, we always thought it was something that rodents had, and we thought it was something that maybe, well, we knew that babies had it. Um, but as detection methods have gotten better, uh, we know that adult humans do have some, and it tends to cluster around the, the clavicle area and down through kind of the base of the spine. It's all up in this, not all of it, but most is kind of in this kind of clavicle neck chest area. Uh, so I, I did some work where we were imaging that with CT and MRI and, and in order to induce, uh, the different imaging techniques, you know, we, we had to, to pick it up with the imaging, we had to induce activation of the brown adipose tissue. We did that with cold exposure. Uh, and it sucked. It was not fun. Like, so what we would do is put these cold, uh, like bags that would have water going through them. 
and we would put them like over the femoral artery and like near the armpits, basically where we could get to, to, you know, relatively superficial areas where blood is flowing yeah. to cool people down pretty quickly. It, it basically like the protocol to save someone from heat exhaustion. Yeah. Like what if they don't have heat exhaustion? Yeah. And that, that's yeah. why the, this equipment exists in the first place. We were, yeah. we were kind of using it for that. Uh, and like in order to really significantly activate this stuff, you have to get people very, very cold, but not quite to the point of shivering. But for us, we needed to avoid shivering because that would mess up our imaging. But mm -hmm. basically, you have to be cold and you can't cheat. You can't be like, oh, I'm going to go in a cold room with like two sweatshirts on and like let myself shiver. Because if you're shivering and wearing sweatshirts, you're 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 fighting off that cold exposure with other forms of, of you know, protection from it. You know, yeah. you've got the clothing on, you've got the shivering to generate heat. So the reason I bring this up, Every like two or three years, someone says, hey, if you just expose yourself to cold conditions, you're going to burn fat like crazy. You're going to be shredded. You're going to lose so much fat. You won't even believe it. It's going to be hard to keep weight on. And that's just it's just not true. Like the the impact of this brown fat induced thermogenesis that's increasing energy expenditure in response to cold exposure it is so minimal. Uh, it, it's not going to have a huge impact on your physique. And it is not a fun way <laughs> to go about burning a few extra calories. Like it's not pleasant when you're on the verge of shivering or even past the point of shivering. So mm -hmm. this is kind of popular again. I don't think it's a particularly applicable or practical strategy worth pursuing because you almost certainly, or almost every time someone brings up brown adipose tissue, they're trying to use it as a, or they're interested in its potential as a fat loss hack of some type. And I just, I haven't seen convincing evidence that it has utility there. So that, that those were not the grad school related questions I thought you were going to answer. Oh, uh, I, I saw one as well uh, from someone asking uh, basically like does using mouthwash really actually mess things up if you're using a nitrate supplement? Yes, uh, it absolutely does. Um, very straightforward answer. So when, when you're using beetroot juice or some other form or source of dietary nitrate, you're hoping it's going to enhance your performance. Uh, what you're trying to do is facilitate nitric oxide production. So we've got nitrate, which needs to be converted to nitrite, which then needs to be converted to nitric oxide in order for this all to work. So the conversion of nitrate to nitrite uh, is fully dependent on the bacteria that reside uh, in, in your your oral cavity. Uh, and so if you use like a really strong antibacterial mouthwash, you will wipe out those colonies uh, of, of bacteria in your mouth. And that process of, uh, you know, converting nitrate into nitrite, which is the critical first step, it's not going to occur. And so, uh, yeah, when I ran a study on beetroot juice, I had to really, really emphasize for all my participants, please do not use mouthwash because if everybody uses mouthwash, they won't let me graduate. I need <laughs> you to <laughs> I need you to follow these instructions. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's absolutely true that uh, mouthwash is gonna is gonna wipe that out. And there's actually interesting research that people who use mouthwash regularly, their blood pressure is just a couple points higher, uh, even looking at like big population level data, which is pretty interesting. That is very cool. Um, okay, so Jay Bell asks, uh, Greg once told Alan Thrall that strength loss during weight loss 
may be due to upper body glycogen loss. Is that still his theory? How long till glycogen is restored once you go back to maintenance? Uh, so I'll, I'll take the last one first. How long does it take to restore glycogen? Like a day or two of eating plenty of carbs, you'll be fine. Um, and so to be clear, that idea, uh, I would say is less of a theory and more of a very tentative hypothesis. Um, one of the things that people often note is that when they go into a caloric deficit, start losing weight, uh, really before there's sufficient time to lose, uh, really any meaningful amount of muscle, uh, their strength starts dropping and it seems to affect the upper body disproportionately. Like it, it's not uncommon to hear someone say like, oh yeah, like I lost 10 pounds, squat and deadlift went fine. Uh, I lost 30 pounds off my bench. What gives? Um, and so the, the reason that I think it might be related to glycogen to some degree, uh, is there's a group of researchers headed by, by someone named Orton Blod, uh, that's done some research looking at, uh, the impact of glycogen levels and specifically glycogen localization on muscle fiber function, um, finding that basically, uh, so you have different depots of glycogen storage within your muscle fibers and the intramyofibrillar glycogen depot is the one that's the most important for muscle contractility. Uh, and once that starts dropping muscle contractile force, uh, and, and also, uh, shortening velocity, um, starts decreasing quite a bit. Uh, and so, you know, if you're seeing relatively large strength losses in the absence of significant muscle loss, something is going on that is affecting muscle contractility. Uh, and, and there are a few different directions you could go with that. Maybe it's central in origin. Like maybe you're just having a harder time generating motor impulses from your brain. I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, maybe it's slightly further along as a central mechanism. Like maybe you're generating those impulses in your brain but there's issues like transmitting them down your spine. Maybe it's peripheral. So, you know, uh, maybe um, motor impulses from motor nerves, it, it's just taking uh, more and more stimulation to actually get the muscle fibers to depolarize in the first place. Again, that's theoretically possible, but I don't think it's a big deal um, in, the, in the absence of fatigue. So, you know, th that could that could very easily explain maybe a decrease in strength endurance uh, as you're dieting. But that sh I, I don't think that would really explain uh, drops in top end strength. And so I, I think it's something that's very localized within the muscle. And in my opinion, glycogen seems like the most the most likely explanation. Um, so glycogen replenishment uh, it is based on both nutritional factors, obviously. So, you know, are you eating carbohydrate? Uh, are you insulin sensitive to get insulin mediated GLUT4 translocation to get some carbohydrate into the muscle? Uh, but it's also exercise mediated. So when you're using some of your muscle mass, you get what's called non-insulin mediated GLUT4 translocation, uh, which basically just you know, you're using a muscle and, and so you get these little transporters to suck carbohydrate into the muscle. Uh, and, you know, you use your legs a lot more than your arms. And so I, I would love to see direct research looking at this, but I think it's very plausible that when you're in a sustained caloric deficit, maybe you, you do experience sustained drops in upper body glycogen levels 
to an extent that you don't experience for your lower body, which then via those local factors could affect muscle contractility, which would explain that decrease in top end strength. Uh, so that that's kind of like the logical flow I'm working with. Uh, and again, there's direct evidence for some of that stuff, specifically the impact of intramyofibrillar glycogen on muscle fiber contractility. Um, but there's like two or three steps along that process where there's not direct evidence. Uh, so to be clear, that is my working hypothesis for why upper body maximal strength seems to decrease for a lot of people, even with pretty moderate weight loss. Um, but, but that, that is a hypothesis much more so than a theory. Cool. Good stuff. All right. Are there any other, uh, particular questions that jump out to you? Um, I, I will say that line of research with the, the localized glycogen depletion that if we had uh, a list of our favorite research areas over the last 10 years, that's easily on my top four. No question. What, what are the other three? Uh, still that just four <laughs> copies of that. No, uh, no, I think, uh, I, I've been, I, I found the localized glycogen depletion fascinating. Um, uh, I found the, the newest research in plant-based protein to be fascinating because it kind of, you know, make, makes a pretty strong case that plant-based proteins can be used pretty effectively for, for strength and hypertrophy, uh, which a lot of people had pretty much accepted as not being the case. One area of research that I'm still waiting for it to make my list because we need more work is the caffeine and CYP1A2 gene, mm -hmm. that relationship, because it seems like every time a paper comes out, it's going back and forth a little bit. I'm yeah. still a little bit skeptical that it has a huge impact, uh, you know, but time will tell. W wasn't there a study that you were considering for mass next month, which suggested that... Uh... I forget which letter is the bad variant, but uh, people who had the the less advantageous CYP1A2 variant actually experienced decreases in strength with caffeine usage. There was at least one circumstance in that paper. I forget the pairing of genotype and yeah. exercise outcome, but there was an ergolytic yeah. effect present. So, uh, I, I, I was uh, I was considering that for research briefs this month, and then when I saw a decrease in performance in one of the groups, I was just like. Nope, this is research briefs. I do not want to have to expend the words it would take to explain this. Uh, maybe Eric will review it next month. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky because there are some bodies of literature where as they're developing, you'll see these discrepancies that seem to appear. And when you don't have a lot of research yet, you, you don't even have a chance to really fill in those gaps. It's only after there's a bunch of research from a bunch of different lab groups that you can start to tease out these specific contributing factors where we say, oh, there's an effect here because of this, but a lack of effect here because of that. Mm -hmm. Until you have different studies with different characteristics, you're really just kind of guessing, you know? Yeah. So, so that's kind of where we're at with that literature, in my opinion. Uh, oh man, I saw a question here that I really want to answer. And, and we've hit the hour mark. Were you thinking about wrapping up fairly soon? Uh, it's up to you. I, I could go either way. Um, but I do very much want to answer this question. So Kenneth Yee asks, what are some studies you'd like to see conducted? Um, and the reason I wanted to, to answer that is there's one study in particular that I've wanted to see since college. 
And I don't think it's like, I don't know if it's ever going to get done, uh, but I think it would be very, very interesting. So uh, as some backstory, there are a couple studies looking at uh, the placebo effect in steroids that I think are very, very cool. So uh, there was one by the le- the lead researcher was Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, I believe, back, back in like 1974. Um where basically they they had a group of people train, I think for seven weeks, uh, they tested bench press, seated shoulder press, standing shoulder press and squat, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, very upper body uh, dominant testing. Um, Barat, stop spamming a single question or we're gonna block you. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so, all right, you're blocked. so yeah, uh, they they were training for seven weeks, and um, those were the exercises they tested. And so for the first seven weeks, uh, no one was using you know, anything. They weren't using steroids, uh, and they they told the subjects like, "Hey, uh, the ones of you that do the best have the best strength outcomes over the seven weeks. We're gonna give you some free steroids to use." So they they kind of had a carrot there for the first seven weeks to motivate them to train hard and try to gain as much strength as they could. Uh, and they put, I think, a total of, on average, 10 kilos uh, across those four lifts on their on their 1RMs uh, across the, f- the first seven weeks of training. And then they gave them placebo pills for... Um, they gave them placebo pills for another four weeks, told them it was gear. Uh, it wasn't anything. It was a sugar pill. Um and they had them train for another four weeks, same basic program. Uh, and over four weeks, they put 45 kilos on their total of those four lifts they were testing. Uh, so they gained strength at like eight times, like seven, eight times the rate that they were previously, um, with really no change other than they thought they were taking gear. And so, you know, obviously that's just one study. I would like to see a direct replication of that. Uh, but then there was another study by Maganaris from like 2000, 2001, uh, where they did something similar, but it, it was more of an acute design and they used um, internationally competitive powerlifters. And this is actually one of my favorite studies ever, just because of the human element of it. So um, it was, I believe, the Great British uh, IPF team. So th- these were single ply lifters. They were pretty strong. I think the average squat was like just north of 600 pounds or like somewhere somewhere in that that general range. Um, but yeah, it, it's the IPF. It's drug tested. But these guys were just like, hey, look, we think other people are probably using gear. It's like, we want to use some gear as well. So they go to their coach and <laughs> they say like, hey, uh, can you hook us up with some steroids? And the coach, who was a researcher, um, was basically just like, ah, yes, now I have an opportunity to study the placebo effect. So he betrayed their trust. Um, instead of getting them steroids, he gave them uh, placebo pills. And so the way the study worked is tested their 1RMs. Then uh, two weeks later, they he gave them placebo pills and uh, had them test their 1RMs again. And they put an average of like 4 or 5% on their lifts, which increasing your total by four or five percent if you're an internationally competitive lifter is insane uh and also the interesting thing about that is it shows that these guys 
also didn't know a single thing about how steroids work. Like they're supposed to make you bigger and stronger over time. But uh, I, I guess the coach was just like, Hey, take this pill today. It'll make you strong. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, they, they tested way better after taking these pills one time. And so then for the next two weeks, uh, their coach kept giving them placebo pills and uh, like, just asked them uh, like, you know, kind of uh, qualitatively, how's your training going? How are you feeling? Uh, and, you know, people were reporting, man, I'm lifting loads. I've never lifted before. I'm recovering way better. I see why people like steroids. Steroids are awesome. So like they self-report, man, best two weeks of training of my life. And then uh, after that, he told half of them, hey, these had been placebos all along. The other half still believed they that they were using gear. Uh, tested their 1RMs again. The people who had then been told that they'd been taking placebos the whole time, even now with the knowledge that like, hey, actually th this great two weeks of training, that was all me. I didn't need steroids for that. They still regressed to like their pre-steroid numbers. They lost the four to five percent that the placebo steroids had given them. Uh, the other the other subjects who still thought that they were taking steroids, they maintained their elevated performance, and some of them even experienced further increases in strength. Um, so anyway, I, I think both of those studies are very interesting. And again, we're talking about a really small body of literature here. Uh, and one of the things we see in placebo research is like placebos ultimately work via expectancy effects. Like they don't physiologically do anything, but uh, positive expectancy tends to make things better. And the degree of positive expectancy elicited by a particular placebo protocol depends on what type of placebo it is. So, you know, in, in like pay search, for example, um, if you give someone a pill that can elicit a placebo effect, uh, if you give someone a placebo injection, that that's a bigger placebo. So there's more expectancy attached to it that elicits a larger placebo effect. And then some studies have even used like sham surgeries where like they put someone under, make an incision, but don't actually do anything. And that elicits an enormous placebo effect because yeah. um, you, you think you just had surgery done. Uh, so anyway, in the realm of like supplements and things you could put in your body to as an ergogenic, like, obviously, if you're taking placebo caffeine, like you're taking a sugar pill you think is caffeine but isn't, that's not going to elicit as large of a, as large of a placebo effect as placebo steroids would. Uh, but ultimately, I think those two studies illustrate maybe like the upper bounds of benefits that one could derive from positive expectancy effects. And so that's a really long lead up to the study that I would like to do because like ultimately, you know you can't really trick people into thinking they're taking steroids forever, uh, or at least like it wouldn't be uh, ethical to do. And uh, I was going to say it wouldn't be economically viable, but like it totally is there. there there's research where uh, like researchers buy black market steroids and test what's in it. And like 40% of it is just completely bunk. Uh, so anyway, I guess, I guess it might actually be profitable, but it certainly wouldn't be ethical. So, you know, thinking to myself, how might one be able to elicit relatively large positive expectancy effects in a way that would be ethical? Uh, and so I think a, a cool study to do would be to um, like have two groups of people 
And one of the groups, like basically they train the way people typically train in a study. Like it's just you and some research assistants alone in a sterile little gym. Well, oftentimes it's not that sterile, but you know, it's, it's a gym that's like, it's not super hype. It's just you and the research assistant. You don't really have anything to base your expectations on for like what resistance training does to a person and you train, you know, maybe you get stronger, maybe you build muscle, uh, hopefully good things happen. But then the other group in the study, they're working out like in like a D1 football training facility while the team is training. And so ideally these would be untrained people. Uh, and so like their first exposure to resistance training and what one might be able to expect from resistance training, uh, is like D1 football players. And so like they're they're basically raised in that environment. And then you see what the results look like. I kind of think that, uh, I, I mean, one of the things that a lot of, especially strength athletes note is that one of the things that helps them take their results to the next level is finding a really, really good gym to train at. Like, you know, like maybe you're gifted for strength, you're training at a gold's gym for a while, you get stronger, but then, like a powerlifting gym opens up in your city, you go, you train there. There's people there who are a lot bigger and stronger than you. And then you realize like, huh, maybe I'm not such hot shit. Like maybe this is what I should be aiming for. Uh, and then you have like a, a pretty notable boost in results pretty quickly. Like that's that's a really common anecdote. And, and I wonder if that is, I don't just wonder, I strongly suspect that that's related to positive expectancy effects. Like, not just being able to see strong people doing stuff on the internet, but being able to see strong people doing stuff in person. I think that, I think that has a really large positive psychological effect on people. Um, and their, their ideas of like, what can I hope to accomplish? What should I be shooting for? Where should I expect to plateau? Like, oh man, I, I'm struggling with a 400 pound squat. Like, oh, maybe I'm kind of strong and like th things are going to start getting hard now. If you see the guy in the rack next to you squatting 800, you're not even going to think about 400. Like that's just, so anyway, I think that would be a really, really cool study to do. Um, and yeah, for the last decade, that's that's the study I've, I've wanted to see. Yeah, that would be cool. All right. Uh, one thing that we probably should address, should have addressed at the beginning is, uh, I always, uh, so someone commented on my expression. They said it looked like I was so done with, uh, with you and, <laughs> and with, with the audience. I don't know how to explain it. That's just how I look, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, well, I, I know we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but now people are finally able to see it. Uh, Eric has two resting faces. He has uh, what he describes as resting crisis face, yeah. which is when he's thinking about anything at all. Doesn't even have to be lost in thought. Uh, just looks like he he has recently heard the most tragic news that has ever occurred. So, someone commented resting bitch face. It's not resting bitch face. It's resting crisis face. Yeah, because it's not just like bad news, but it's like it's like as if I were the president of the United States and there's an immediate crisis that needed my attention. Like yeah. I have to solve this right now and the stakes are impossibly high. Yeah. So that, that's one of them or just like 
annoyed's not the right word. <laughs> Just like resting checked out face. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I I have a bad memory <laughs> and uh a lot of uh I've wondered to what extent my concussion history plays into that. Mm-hmm. But when I think more deeply about it, I've always had a bad memory and I think it's because I actually spent most of my childhood simply not present, like mentally fully checked out. Yeah. I wasn't actually encoding memories because I wasn't observing anything around me. Yeah. Like I was completely in a different uh a different world. Yeah. But but no, I've I've been here the whole time. But you know, sometimes I just look like I'm either totally spaced out or dealing with a, a really existential crisis. But yeah, that that is completely normal. Uh, don't be alarmed. Best I can tell, he's not mad at me right now. I don't think he's mad at you guys. Uh, <laughs> things are totally fine. Yeah. Um, so we didn't want to make this like a 90-minute sales pitch for the app, but we have gotten a lot of questions about the app. Many people have been asking about it. There have been quite a few. Uh, We've been asking more and more. <laughs> yeah. Many of the best people. Yeah. One question that I did want to briefly uh, address was, does macro factor accommodate protein intakes for vegan and vegetarian folks? Uh, and the answer is yes. And I think one of the cool features about the app is that you can actually look at the amino acid profile of your protein sources. Uh, I think that's a really, really cool. Uh, it, it's cool to me because as I mentioned on the podcast, I'm on the path to enlightenment in my secular Buddhist quest. And so I haven't been eating any meat lately. And so I do like to check in sometimes and see if I'm getting all my essential amino acids and stuff. So I, I think that's a, a really cool part. But we are going to have uh, another, I think it's fair to say this went well enough to replicate, right? Yeah. So we're going to have another live YouTube thing the night we launch the app. And so I think we should probably save a lot of the app questions for that event because that'll be totally on topic. Yes, September 16th, and we're going to have a launch party. Um we're going to just just exclusively be shilling the app, answering your questions. Maybe drinking champagne. Popping bottles. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's going to be a blast. Yeah. So everyone can join the uh, the release party. This time I, I just got drunk before we started recording. So, it, yeah. you know, wouldn't it be tacky? There wouldn't be the sound of the bottle getting sat down on the table. Yeah. Um, but yeah, n- next time you'll you'll be able to see my mental state devolve in real time. But we we did uh, the sales page is live, right? It is. So if people want to take a look at some of the features, they can see that now, I believe. Yeah. Right? So if you want to go to strongerbyscience.com slash macro factor, uh, you can check out the sales page. Um, I think it's pretty slick. Personally, paints the app in a very good light, uh, which isn't difficult because it's an excellent app. Um and yeah. Ooh, this is interesting. Uh, you know, Ryan asked about some dating advice. He asked if Macro Factor could be a dating app. Any app can be a dating app if you try hard enough. Yeah, that's an interesting feature that we will look into. Um, were there any other questions that you wanted to uh, to look at before we sign off? Um, I, I should say, uh, you know, there were obviously more questions that we could possibly answer tonight. And we do appreciate that. We really uh, appreciate everybody for joining us, especially on really short notice. Um, but keep your questions. We do Q and A's on the podcast all the time, usually a day or two before we're going to record a, a normal podcast in our Facebook group and in our subreddit, we'll say, Hey, anybody have any questions? So 
hold on to your questions. You can submit them there and hopefully we'll be able to get to them on the show someday. And I don't know, maybe we'll do more of these live events as well. Who knows? I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I think we know about enough things that we can field questions live. I think it makes it more interactive and it means we don't have to prepare, which, uh, which is nice. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll still, yeah, we we will definitely uh, keep that in mind. That is, that is a very doable thing in the future. Uh, I'm a little bit annoyed about this one. Someone asked if, if I could start doing a secular Buddhism segment on the podcast. It's called road to enlightenment. It's the road to enlightenment. Listen to the recent episodes, Lure Carter. I literally do it already, but outrageous. I do need to make that segment better, but (laughs) 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 I don't. So I really painted myself into a corner with that segment because I don't, I'm in no position to be teaching about secular Buddhism. I'm like a novice level entry level beginner. Uh, And I also, I, it didn't stop Sam Harris. (laughs) God. Close the chat before we get a bunch of negative <laughs> comments. Uh, but I'm also like a relatively private person. So I can't even like lead on like anecdotes of my inner being and my journey through Buddhism. So I don't know what I don't know what I planned for that segment, but uh, it is is crashing and burning. So I need to figure out what to do. Some I people mean, don't I mean, even the, know it exists. I mean, that's on you. It is. Um, all right. Any last question you want to get to here? I think I'm good. All right. Uh, once again, we really do appreciate everyone for joining us. We absolutely are going to do this again. Uh, two weeks from tonight, it'll be 8 PM Eastern. Uh, it will be the official macro factor launch party. It's the diet app that we've been working for ages to put together. We've been working on that thing forever. We're stoked about it and we're excited to share it with everybody. Uh, beta testing has been going really, really well. So we think uh, if you choose to check out the app, we do think you'll really enjoy it based on the feedback we've gotten here. So uh, I'm going to stumble around and try to figure out how to close a YouTube live uh, and we're signing off. So once again, thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.